took me 10 years to, to do this book, 10 years to research and then to keep digging ever deeper. I did 170 interviews, wow. for example. Where that's the history that never finds its way into the history books. Yeah. And it's the real history. It's the anecdotes. It's the, you're the fly on the wall watching these things going on that are never put on paper and certainly never find their way into memoirs and the, the official history, if you will. Hour, C-SPAN, and director of five presidential libraries. Another thing that I found, I knew a little bit, but the book goes at like the Warren Commission and Ford's hey, central role he, in the conspiracy he, he, and scandal. And if you could talk about his own beliefs and what he took to the grave on what happened to JFK. Yeah, he was the last surviving member of the Warren Commission. So for the last 15 years of his life, he was the go-to guy who was put in the position, whether he wanted to or not, of, in effect, being its defender. Yeah. So when Oliver Stone made the AFK, you know, everyone beat a path to Ford's door. And Ford made himself very available to the press. It was not hard to, to get in to see him. And his position always was, we did the best job we could with the evidence we had. If new evidence surfaces, and it's credible, then obviously it should be taken into account. He had his own, the interesting, what I found going through the hundreds and hundreds of pages of questions that he had come up with for the lawyers, the experts, I thought to myself, this guy would have been a really good courtroom lawyer. And of course, that's what he studied to be. But he was asking the very same questions that the conspiracy theorists have been expounding ever since. He was asking about the overpass. He was asking about DOE Plaza. He was asking about the possibility of a second or other gunman. Anyway, and it's all in writing. And But the interesting thing is what people don't know, and again, he didn't talk about it much, even in his memoir. He was the first member of the Warren Commission. I've, I've seen all the notes, all the meetings and the like, and as well as his own material, plus his diaries. And you can trace the evolution of his thinking during those six months or so that the commission was working. He started out, he was the first member, and he was the last member of the Warren Commission to seriously harbor doubts. Yeah. And to believe that it was that quite possibly JFK had died as a result of a foreign-based conspiracy. And he was looking at Cuba in particular, and to a lesser degree, the Soviet Union. There's, to me, a fascinating moment. He and Chief Justice Warren, they were not the best of friends. They they were politically not sympathetic, but they went to Dallas together and they went to the Texas School Book Depository, and they looked out the window, and they're listening as a staffer named Earl Inspector, <laughs> who would later become a United States yeah. Senator from Pennsylvania, is explaining what we all know as the single bullet theory. And it's a, I think it's a real turning point 
in the history of the commission. I think, more, as far as I know, it's the first time either one of them heard it, expounded at length. I think they found it credible. They obviously did a lot more investigating. But there's this amazing scene where they go from the school book depository over to the sheriff's office in the county building where they interviewed Jack Ruby. The man, of course, accused of killing Lee Harvey Oswald. And there's this, to me, amazing encounter where Ruby seems, and third in his diary, writes about this. That at first, Ruby seems composed and perfectly, I hate to use the word normal, and gradually this facade erodes. And eventually, Ruby is... Uh, telling Chief Justice Warren that they're killing Jewish kids in Albuquerque, and it's just this kind of almost nonsensical stream of consciousness, if you will. Yeah. And there's this moment when, oh, and he wants a Jew in the room, and Alan Spector's Jewish. So they bring Alan Spector into the room, and of course Jack Ruby is Jewish as well. But in any event, there's this amazing moment where Ruby ostensibly is talking one-on-one in a very urgent tone to Chief Justice Warren. He sees out of the corner of his eye, his lawyer passes a piece of paper to Gerald Ford, who is the other member of the commission who is participating in this interview. And Ruby demands that it be shown, and they retrieve it, and, and the lawyer is written to Gerald Ford, I told you he was crazy. Wow. <laughs> and Ford went to his grave. It's interesting. Ford, I think, late in life, at least it was late in life that he talked about it. Maybe he believed it at the time. He had a theory of his own because we're, I understand that where the conspiracy theorists thrive is trying to think of some sort of rational motive, which has never really been discerned. And Ford believed that it was at least possible. Lee Harvey Oswald was in a very troubled, very unhappy marriage to Marina, who was herself working. Yeah. And Ford believed that Oswald was impotent and that he killed, he got the idea of killing the president to show Marina just how much of a man he was. Yeah. Fascinating, which is a pretty remarkable thought. Yeah, know? and he's the man who studied all of the information that we could know and not know, and that was the conclusion. I thought that was incredible, and, and I haven't seen that anywhere else. Which, yeah. especially for all the literature written about it, it's um, yeah. But uh, yeah, incredible stuff. One of um, your big pieces that you have in the book that you broke was that, that he knew six months prior to what the, the public thought he knew. To replace When you got into a piece of information like that, are you just salivating and celebrating? Or I, I'm glad you mentioned it because it is probably the biggest historical bombshell. Yeah. But isn't it remarkable? Here we are 50 years later. And there are still things that we're discovering. Right. Which which leads me to believe that what else is there out there that we don't know? Exactly. Including to this day, I've never heard a coherent, credible explanation of why the break-in took place. Yeah. There have been a lot of theories advanced. But as far as what you're referring to is, it's interesting. 
because this is a kind of process question. I had one source I thought was an impeccable source that told me that Ford knew six months ahead of he ever went on. But I wouldn't have written it if I only had one source. Right. It turned out I then got a second source who, in fact, later worked as a deputy press secretary at the White House, who was himself absolutely credible source. And so with the two sources, I was able to check one story against the other. And sure enough, Ford knew, I would say, in February of 74, Agnew left in October. The story broke in August. So six months before August, Ford knew. And the, and more than that, Ford was interested in replacing Agnew. Yeah. That's, again, his reputation was good old Jerry, the House Republican leader who was beloved in many ways and popular on both sides of the aisle, but was not seen as a particularly ambitious person. And in fact, he was much more ambitious than he went on. And I've been talking to the great Lee Hamilton from Indiana, Democratic congressman, who uh, was swept in on the LBJ landslide. And he said something really shrewd. He said, Jerry was very ambitious. And he said he cloaked it nicely. Yeah. And that pretty much sums it up. Ford, which also, you know, dovetails with the whole theme of the book, that there's much more to Ford than he let us see. And fortunately, it's it's not like there's this dark side. There's, there's not this sensational side that was hidden in all those years. But Ford was a much more complicated figure than he went on. He's a little bit like Ronald Reagan in that I think he made a career out of being underestimated. Yeah. If there are worse things in politics than to be underestimated. Yeah. Because you can often surprise people. Right. on the upside it turned out it's one reason why he uh he went to yale uh, because he wanted to be a lawyer but um they wouldn't take him uh because he was carrying a full-time job as assistant football coach um, boxing coach uh, a scout for for the athletic department and he was convinced that he could do both and he finally managed uh, on a trial basis to put in the door of the law school and sure enough graduated in the class of 1940 that year he was part of the four students the quartet of students at year law who founded an organization called america first which was an anti-war there was a whole generation of young americans who looked back at world war one and were disillusioned by what they saw they thought of all the promises that had been made, and not only have the promises not been kept, but it looked like Europe was about to repeat the horrors of the first war all over again. So they wanted nothing to do with another European war. And so that anyway, included John F. Kennedy and Gore Vidal and, and, and Frank Lloyd Wright and yeah. William Gish, Walt Disney. Yeah. I mean, it was a huge organization. In other, the words America first meant something very different in 1940 from what they mean in their modern connotation. Yes. Readers have to keep that in mind. But the interesting thing, what I found was a couple of things. First of all, he quit the organization about the same time that he went to Philadelphia and was among the thousands who were chanting, we want Wookiee 
at that year's Republican convention. That was his real introduction to, to politics on the national level. And Wendell Wilkie was, of course, anything but an isolationist. He agreed with FDR about the need to provide assistance to Great Britain. Anyway, the other thing that I discovered was that, unknown to anyone until recently, Ford, in fact, was trying to move heaven and earth to get into the Navy. Yeah. And finally, I discovered, he, at Pearl Harbor, he had applied to the FBI to be an agent and got rave reviews from a number of people. The local office said, this is the best candidate we've ever had. And in the end, it turns out Jay Groover personally blackballed him because the FBI office in New Haven informed Jay Groover about Ford's involvement with America First, even though he had quit the organization and Hoover pulled the plug. I personally believe that Gerald Ford went to his grave not knowing that Jay Hoover, that I think he thought that he was rejected because of a bad football game, Yeah. for example. Anyway, those are the kinds of things that you talk to any biographer, if you dig deep enough, long enough, you're going to discover things that other people haven't discovered. And Congress was so different. It was so partisan. It was no era of good feelings. Anyone who can remember the 70s, the bitter emotions that were aroused by Vietnam, not to mention Watergate, and the enormous social changes that were transforming the culture, whether it was the civil rights movement or the women's movement. Uh, it was America was changing before our eyes. And as we know, even now, that produces a certain amount of tension. Yeah. And it expressed itself in its politics. But the, the difference was that people were, they took seriously the business of legislating. Yeah. And I worked for Bob Dole for a number of years. And people like Ford and Dole, who could be very partisan Republicans, very conservative in their attitude about government generally, same, they said at the end of the day, their constituents expected them to deliver. And delivering meant getting things done. Yeah. Today, it often feels as if it's the opposite as if delivering means making sure that nothing gets done. And I think that's one of the real differences that I, and he lived long enough to see that course unfolding, and I think it dismayed him. But it dismayed a lot of people. (laughs) There is one last quote I have to, Marvel, because it is relevant to today. We'll end on a contemporary note. Yes. In 1980, he did an interview, you may recall, with Neil McNeil, a legendary correspondent from Time magazine. And I don't know whether it was intended for an old bit or whatever, but anyway, he was talking about the presidency. And Neil McNeil asked a really interesting question. Usually, a reporter would say, what are the qualifications for president? But Neil McNeil said, what are the disqualifications of president? And Ford thought for a minute, and he said, I would say arrogance. He said, not that the American people would ever elect uh, a truly arrogant president, but he said, really, in, in the extreme sense, if that were to happen, then, as he said, and God help the country. And uh, I'll leave it there. 
Richard Norton Smith, check out An Ordinary Man from HarperCollins. Incredible book. I'll link to it on the newsletter side. Thank you so much.